0: the art of leadership network Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. It's Carrie here and I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. Well, we uh, get very honest and very real today with John Mark Comer. He's back on the podcast and we'll tell you more about that in just a moment. I am so glad you tuned in. This is a, a very real conversation today. And today's episode is brought to you by Rethink Leadership. Make plans to join me and hundreds of other leaders who are gathering in Atlanta, April 26th through 28th for the Rethink Leadership Conference. Go to conference.rethinkleadership.com. Use the code CARRY23, you'll get special pricing. And by He Gets Us, the folks behind the ads want you to be ready for conversations about Jesus. That's why they've created free resources, and you can get them, you and your church, at He Gets Us Partners.comslash Super Bowl. You saw with lots of other people the Super Bowl ads. Go to He Gets Us Super Bowl to learn more about He Gets Us and get your free resources. Well, John Mark Comer and I talk about well, his year-long sabbatical after leaving Bridgetown Church's lead pastor, how stepping down from day-to-day church leadership impacted his identity. We go pretty deep. Why ministry is harder than it needs to be. The secret life of trees, yeah, we talk about that. And this is where it got really raw and really vulnerable. felt like it was a therapy session, but we were both good with it, okay? We're gonna talk about why attending a church after you've led one can be so hard. And well, I'm glad you joined us for the conversation. John Mark Comer is the New York Times bestselling author of Live No Lies, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, and four previous books. He's also the founder and teacher of Practicing the Way, a simple, beautiful way to integrate spiritual formation into your church or small group. Prior to starting Practicing the Way, he spent almost 20 years pastoring Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon, and working out discipleship to Jesus in a post-Christian world. Well, I am very excited to be back at Rethink Leadership, and as a senior pastor, you probably have a list of questions that keep you up at night. That's why you listen to this podcast. If you're looking for answers to a growing list of new challenges, then the Rethink Leadership Conference is the place you need to be. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to gather world-class leaders from inside and outside the church, leaders like Horst Schultze, former CEO of Ritz Carlton, Katie Cole, Darius Daniels, Mark Batterson, uh, Reggie Joyner, Kristen Ivey, and a whole lot more. There's a ton of interaction. You're going to be seated around round tables, and it's a flat structure. You're going to have lots of conversations, including with some of the keynotes. We've got breakouts. And in those breakouts, we're going to give you practical answers to the questions you're asking. If you haven't been there before, this is your year. If you have been there before, it's time to come back. It's happening April 26th to 28th, 2023. I'm going to give you an exclusive discount code. So go to conference.rethinkleadership.com. Use the code carey 23 that's C A R E Y23, for special pricing. And then a couple weeks ago, if you saw the Super Bowl, you realized over a hundred. Million people saw two ads about Jesus and his love. That means millions of people are having conversations in their homes and churches with their friends, and they're talking about the message behind the message. So he gets us the folks behind the ads want you to be ready for these conversations. That's why they've created free, funded resources that give you new and exciting ways to share Jesus' message. So, to access the resources, go to hegetsuspartners.com slash Super Bowl. You will learn more about He Gets Us and get your free resources. We don't want you to miss this opportunity to connect. So, again, it's all free. Go to hegetsuspartners.com slash Super Bowl and sign up to get your resources. So, with all that said, a raw, vulnerable, and wonderful conversation with John Mark Comer, John Mark, welcome
1: back. It's great to see you.
0: It is really, really good to see you after you
1: disappeared for a year. Like, uh, yes, it's grid. nice to be seen after a <laughs> bit. I was just saying, I I was late for our appointment because I had to update my Chrome browser. I'm quite behind the times now.
0: Well, I think they updated about every three days as it is, so no, that's a good thing, though, right? We've talked about unplugging before, and it's, it's not bad. I've, I've been really challenged by you to be totally transparent about not touching your phone. So I'm not like, I'm not going to touch my phone for a year until lunch. Uh, <laughs> but I have done it like without it for the first hour of the day and it's surprisingly refreshing.
1: Yeah. It's an essential discipline for me. And, uh, the gift of sabbatical was to be able to have an extended period like that. It was, uh, it was a treasure. Sabbatical is not nearly as fun as I think most people imagine. <laughs> it's uh, as much of a hospital visit as it is a vacation. But the gift was getting to have a spiritual life that nobody ever saw. Um, wow. You know, there's just such a danger in what I do when all of your spiritual life is kind of on display and you know, it does sometimes there's like an insidious version of that, the Matthew six kind of doing stuff for the wrong reasons, but then there's just the, everything's working its way into a sermon illustration or a Instagram post or a podcast conversation. And it was so wonderful to have a season where just all of that was stripped away. And, uh, the real got to come to the surface that was a really precious gift in my life
0: i'm sure it was a gift but it's interesting to think of the sabbatical as a hospital visit not just a vacation cuz i've i've never done the year long sabbatical but i imagine it as a very boring vacation that i would eventually have to fill up with something meaningful and significant but a hospital visit like what did you what did you learn about that
1: well, some of that goes back to, I've done two sabbaticals now, one, you know, about eight, nine years ago, that was three months long. And then this last one, which is kind of, I called it a year long sabbatical. It was only about five months off, five or six months off work. And then the other five or six months I was working, but all kind of offline. So writing and prepping a new nonprofit that we started. So nothing, no preaching or teaching, nothing on stages or with microphones, but um, it's kind of a year offline. And before my first sabbatical, in listening prayer, I'd ask uh, the Spirit of Jesus for an image. You know, we kind of all live from metaphors. So I kind of asked him for a a metaphor to frame my sabbatical. And the the picture that came to mind was of this old World War II movie. I don't even remember what it was called that I used to watch with my dad. It was a black and white, you know, likely from the 50s or early 60s. And in it, there's this flyer in the South Pacific, American pilot who's shot down and wounded and he's sent back to a hospital on Hawaii. And uh, he's in this hospital and he's sick and he's in bed, but he's like flirting with the nurse. And she, you know, wheels him outside in the, in the wheelchair and it's gorgeous outside and the palm trees are swaying and he's throwing up because he can't hold down his food and he can't walk and he's in traction, and it was, that was the image that I felt like God said, this is what sabbatical is for you, and we were in Hawaii, actually, for a bunch of it, Mm -hmm. and uh, it really felt exactly like that, this mix of, like, I'm in paradise, and this is, like, an extended vacation, and, like, I'm wounded, and in deep need of healing, and traction, and rehabilitation, so this last one was that, but to the nth degree, even more so, and it was not just Sitting around. We did some fun stuff. We did some traveling. We spent a month in Africa. But I did, you know, a 21-day guided solitude retreat with a clinical psychologist. That was one of the most difficult things I've ever done in my life. And a number of things like that that were just cry- trying to kind of make space. You know, in ministry, you just mm-hmm. you accrue wounds. And that's that's part of the job. That's not like that's not a sign that something has gone wrong it's a sign that like something has gone right, like it's the holy wound. And and that's why I'm reading Paul wrong. Paul very much has like a theology of leadership as vicarious suffering, not in the atonement sense, but you are allowing intentionally uh, hurt, persecution in his case, violence in his case, wounding into your life to allow uh, blessing and life and truth to come through your life to the people that you serve. So it's inevitable that like you just end up like (laughs) pretty beat up after a while. And so finding a space to attend to those wounds and to let them become holy wounds, whether that's through sabbatical or therapy or some other, you know, medium is absolutely essential. Otherwise, we begin to minister not like from those wounds, but from like unhealed wounds, which is where Mm -hmm. so much of the dysfunctional leadership stuff comes from, you know? Yeah,
0: the last time I think we were talking was right before your sabbatical. And we were talking about your wounds and coming through COVID and the whole deal. And you wrote a really beautiful post for my website, which we'll link to called, I think it was called Pastor Woody Do With Your Wounds. That's right, yes. That's where it feels like a lifetime ago. It probably does, right? That was barely 14 months ago, a year ago. But at that time you were reflecting on just the beat up of COVID. But I imagine yes. with with five months or a year, depending on how you count it, you're kind of going over a lifetime of yes. adult in childhood. 20 years for me. Yeah. 20 years of ministry. Looking back on it, what are some insights? What are some yeah, reflections that you would feel comfortable sharing with other leaders?
1: On just ministry in general, or on yeah, my sabbatical or the or... condition
0: that you were in. I mean, just this is an open conversation, so take it where you want to take it. But I'm thinking, like, very few of us, because uh, you know, I've had to do my healing in process that's self inflicted. Yeah. I just haven't taken a long break. Um, but yeah, I had my baggage too, and yeah. you know, over the decades, it accumulates for sure. So, what were you dealing with? How did you deal with it? What was helpful? What was particularly painful? And what part of that may have been endemic to ministry as opposed to perhaps unique to you?
1: Yeah, I mean, well, it's all jumbled up in there. You know, yeah, yeah. what was yeah. the fault of ministry? What's my fault? What's um, how I did all... ministry? Right. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, the older you get, the less of a victim you realize you are, <laughs> and the more <laughs> yeah, of a perpetrator. I'm not a you know, uh-huh. and we all are, but we're all perpetrators too. Yeah. You know, it's a yeah. both and. But you know, it's interesting. Um, now re- recalling that post I did for you right before I left that whole season, of my life's a bit of a blur. But on pastoral wounding and holy wounds, I, you know, I had a real sense that leading in Portland, Oregon, of all places, through 2020. You know, and Portland was essentially the you know, most intense of all the race riots in all the world. And we we're just a few blocks from the riots. Uh, and um, so just living through that and all the stuff you did not see on the news at a not just a socio-political level, but a spiritual level, I had a real sense that that season in particular um, messed me up pretty bad. And then to go straight from that and COVID and the election and all this stuff straight into uh, a transition out of the lead pastor role, uh, <laughs> yeah. which is not exactly, it's not a walk in the park. It went very well, but it was, it, you know, it took everything out of me. Um, so, you know, those two things. And then we went through right after that, we went through a real, um, a personal tragedy. I'm not, I'm not at liberty to talk about, but sure. uh, a yeah. an experience of grief and loss for our family And so it was kind of three waves back to back. I had a sense that all that had messed me up pretty bad. And actually recently as part of my sabbatical, I started working with a a unique kind of psychiatrist down in the area where I'm living right now who does brain scans. It's a kind of a different approach to psychiatry. It's not drug based. Um, It's kind of brain scan based and then a holistic kind of approach to healing your brain. And so uh, I was shocked and not shocked when uh, he diagnosed me with PTSD and emotional trauma. And he said, you know, have you been through something very traumatic the last few years of your life? I was like, I have no (laughs) idea what you're talking about. And it was just crazy to see like a scan of my brain and see like, all right, this is what this part of your brain is supposed to look like. And this is what it looks like. And um, so one of the major learnings, I think, was just, like, the importance of my body, you know? I've been thinking about that a lot lately, like, you know, John Pope John Paul's um, theology of the body and just how essential the body is in our formation, and our life, all the, you know, the body keeps the score kind of stuff. Just learning so much about that in my own life and a, a couple of people that I work with closely and realizing, you know, whatever long-term you know, ministry looks like, whatever formation looks like, it has to really take seriously the body. And at 42 years old, you know, what's the saying? It's not the years, it's the mileage. (laughs) And (laughs) because I started so young, I just feel like an old man in a, you know, my body. And um, I'm doing really well. And lots of, lots of things are trending in a really good direction. But that's one of the major takeaways is just the toll that it's been on my body and and that has just deepened my commitment to a lot of the things that I already care about and have already said much about around uh, emotional health, around rule of life, around Sabbath. You know the whole concept of load management and athletics and applied to leadership. My Peloton instructor the other day said, "How you recover is how you play, and how you play is how you win." It was a very self-helpy kind of Peloton line, but mm-hmm. I thought, man, there's such a leadership lesson in there. You know, I read this book a couple of years ago by an Olympic trainer who said at the Olympic level in athleticism, the difference between an Olympian and a mere professional, mere professional is not how hard they work but how hard they rest. They both mm-hmm. take their work with about equal level of seriousness. But what really separates the Olympian from someone else is how seriously they take their rest. And whether that's, you know, LeBron James doing his hyperbolic chamber and his 11 hours of sleep and all the things, or what, you know, how do you apply that to be an entrepreneur or a pastor or a leader or a CEO or whatever, whoever is listening? I just think it deepened my commitment to that. And it caused me to really reckon with a lot of things in my early 40s, you know, because ministry is so, um, Inevitably responsive, which is a nice way of saying reactive. Uh, like now, I'm doing I'm, I'm a new job for the first time in my whole life. I'm not leading a church, and the major difference is it's it's like so much less reactive. It's more like we plan out our year and we plan out our month and our week. And not that things can't interrupt or get behind schedule or go sideways, but you know, I was reading Obama's memoir uh, a year or two mm-hmm. ago and whatever you think of him politically is just a beautiful read. It's an interesting and, book, yeah. Interesting book. And did you did you remember that spot where he said he said 90% of the presidency is is dealing with crises and problems you inherited from your predecessor? And only if you can do the 90% of your job well do you even have a chance to try to do the 10% of your job that you actually signed up for to like move your vision (laughs) forward and change America how you want it to be. I'm like, that's, I I remember thinking, that's what pastoring is like. Uh 90% of the job is dealing with problems and stuff you inherited and tyranny of the urgent. only if you even get that done and solvent Can you take the 10% that you really care about, whether it's discipleship or the lost or the city or whatever, you know? And man, that resonated with me. And I think because ministry is so responsive slash reactive, and that's just built into it, I think it's so easy just to get sucked into a lot of dysfunctional patterns because you're never done. There's never an end to the to-do list. You're never off. And so I think I justified a lot of chronic bad decisions by saying, this is just a season. I just got to get through this. I just got to get, it's COVID and then it's the election and then it's the transition. And it's, but it's, you start to realize at some point, no, like this is ministry. It's just crisis after crisis after crisis. Like that's okay. Like make peace with that. You can live a beautiful life in the middle of that. But at some point, when you're 42 years old, you can't just keep saying, it's a season. You start to realize, (laughs) no, this is me. I'm the problem. And I can blame it on this external stimuli, but I have now this, you know, patterns that I had to face. You know, in my life, it would be like chronic overcommitment in an attempt to please people or whatever. Some of these patterns, idealism that results in overwork, Um, You know, some of these patterns in my life, I can no longer explain away based on we're a church plant, we're this, it's a season, we just have to get through whatever, Easter. You start to realize, oh, wow, like it's just who you are becomes more and more glaring and clear. And that's very difficult and it's a real gift. And so, I don't know, I'm rambling, but those are a couple of the things that I think I've spent a lot of time in reflection on, you know?
0: When you reflected on it now for just over a year, did it surprise you? Like, does it surprise you to look back? Because, I mean, you wrote The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. You have talked for years about practicing the way and creating margin in your life. And looking back on it now, did it surprise you how sucked into the vortex you still got despite that?
1: Yeah, um, yes. You know the irony of that book that I wrote on hurry is I wrote that out of four or five of the best years of my life. As far I mean, I just was living every single thing in that book, and and I continued to. But that book, you know, opened me up to a whole bunch of new invitations and opportunities and (laughs) commitments and responsibilities that quickly drowned out the very life that I was. was living and at one point Ugh. and you know the the great tragedy is this was a month before covid i had this uh, come to jesus moment moment as they would say in the south and uh where i was starting to just burn out again as I, and i mm-hmm. and i realized something had gone wrong when i uh had missed like i think it was almost 6 sabbaths in a row to travel and teach on sabbath <laughs> and i was Somebody right there Okay, yeah. all right. There's a word uh-huh. for that, and it's it's not a good word. And uh Jesus used it quite a few times and it was not a positive word. And my um my mentor was so kind to me and he had the best word. He said, yeah. you know, if the enemy can't under promote you, he'll overpromote you faster than your rhythms of grace and your Christ-like character can sustain. And this is what you see. All I mean, pick your celebrity scandal of choice. A ton of them, in particular, with the younger ones, were that to a T. Their problem was overpromotion, too much, mm-hmm. too fast. I don't know if there's that little book, um, "The Hidden Life of the Secret Life of Trees." Have you ever read that? So no, but oh, left. it's oh, it's so fun. You'll love it. It's and anyway, you love it. It's just full of just so many thoughtful things. And you know, biblically, trees are like this. You know, there's this literary motif all through scripture of people as trees and trees as people. But he has this chapter where he writes about the forest canopy and how, you know, the the, tr- the younger trees, uh, trees obviously grow by photosynthesis, light, uh, they get very, very little light because they're underneath the, the, you know, the over canopy, these older trees. And the very little light that they get that they can photosynthesize they have to channel into strengthening their trunk and their root system. And that's the only place for their energy to go. And then eventually the you know older trees die and they can kind of grow up and take their place. But if there's a storm or a logger or something tragic causes one of the older trees to die too quickly, this little tree, these new trees, will just explode up into the tree canopy because now they're getting all the sunshine and they'll just shoot up They'll take its place and then almost inevitably they will then in the next storm die themselves or fall over because they haven't had enough years waiting, strengthening the fabric of their trunk to be able to sustain that height and that level of growth. So um, I think that that's what we just see on repeat, you know, in pastoral Mm -hmm. scandal after pastoral scandal is the need for just long years of hiddenness and humility to come through all of it. This is an
0: interesting, maybe a dead question right now. And maybe we need to ask this five years from now. Um, because you're not heading back into day-to-day leading a church anytime soon, that's not in the plans. You have a whole new direction in your life, as do I. But I sometimes, well, I don't think about this very often, but I'm thinking about this right now. You know, if you were to go back into day-to-day ministry, how would you set up, how, how would it be different? What safeguards would you set up? What guardrails would you put in place? What would you do differently knowing what you know now? Saying, all right, if I ever did this again, here's what I would make sure. Because I I ran around like a chicken with my head cut off while our church was going rapidly for 11 years and it landed me completely burned out. And that was the hinge point of my life. And so I've spent the last 17 years trying not to make that mistake again, testing it out a little bit in church leadership, but I've also got seven plus years now on the other side of it, leading this, which I have a lot more control over. But it's an interesting thought exercise. Because a lot of people who are listening to this are still in the trenches. They're still in
1: the vortex. Yeah, and, yeah. Any th- and have initial thoughts? No, no. I mean, I have a few because you know our life is is the Lord's, and and mm. and we'll see what happens. But um, my wife and I are praying about not anytime soon, but um, in a few more years at least, starting something else that would be uh, quite a bit different, actually, than what we did before. So it is on our mind. We think about it a lot. How would we do it differently if we if we plant again? What would we do the same? What would we do differently? And um, a couple of things I know for sure. One is I would never, ever uh, embrace a lead pastor model again. Mm. And not because I'm anti-leadership, not for like egalitarian, anti-hierarchy reasons. I'm actually quite comfortable with that kind of stuff. More for emotional health reasons, more for New Testament reasons. You see very strong leaders in the New Testament, but even the strong leaders have apostolic bands around them. Uh, You see elders in the plural, never in the singular, so on and so forth. I don't think I would ever start a church by myself, ever lead a church by myself, ever. And, you know, all pastors, (laughs) I used to say, every pastor wants to have a team, but that's different than being on a team. (laughs) And, um, yeah, I, I think I, I would want to do it in team or whatever the right word in, in a leadership community with a few other really core leaders or families. Um, I would never do it alone again. Secondly, I would start with a rule of life before I ever, um, did a thing I would go into the wilderness with God and community and I would wait until we had a rule of life that we really felt like was a conducive way to live for that city or context that was sustainable over decades, not years. And I would build an entire church around a way of life together. Third, I think I would Um, significantly alter the Sunday experience to be more of a Sabbath experience and less of a Christian busyness experience. (laughs) Um, And I would make some hard intentional decisions about what we did and did not do as a church in order to make the Sunday experience more conducive to Sabbath. Um, And finally, I think even more, I really would make the table, and I don't mean like, in a sacramental sense, like an actual table, table-based community, the center of anything we did. Again, hmm. not to say that there wouldn't be a Sunday gathering or preaching or things like that, but I would, you know, and I've, I worked really hard to do this at Bridgetown for many years, but I think I would work even harder and do even more. So I don't know. Those are some of the, some of the major shifts I think we would make. And we would incorporate just a lot of things that are pretty foreign right now in most evangelical churches. I think we'd, Want to put pretty pretty close to the center, like Sabbath, like silence, mm. and uh, stuff like that.
0: You like moved or morphed into some of that at Bridgetown under your leadership. Like you started as a lead pastor, and then you're like, okay, yeah. no, I'm gonna bring a team around me, and okay, yeah. maybe I'll focus on teaching, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. Uh, You also radically changed the weekend experience, but you're talking about
1: like reinventing kind of from the ground up or like amplifying Um, those. Yeah. I mean, with the team leadership stuff at Bridgetown, yes, we did that. And what a beautiful team I got to run with for many years, but we could have taken it a lot farther. I think one of the things I'm learning now is I had way more freedom than I realized I did. Um, I my personality, uh, for better or for worse, uh, really for both, is I, I'm very dutiful, and um, and I'm not. I don't have a, a a common personality matrix that you know to most pastors, so I always have felt like the odd person out. And um, I think the result is I, I regularly felt like I had to fit a certain template to be a, quote, good pastor. And um, because I wanted so badly to be a good pastor, I kept trying to cram my life into this template um, of a basically busy, extroverted, community organizer kind of person. And that's mm. just not who I am. And I think in hindsight, so much of that pressure that I felt there, there was legitimate pressures from people, but, but there's always going to be legitimate pressures from people. (laughs) And um, so much of it was, was self-inflicted pain. You know, it was, it was not of Jesus. It was not coming from my elders per se. And, you know, if I had come to them and said, I like, let's rebuild this and let's have, you know, multiple, multiple lead pastors and, you lead this, and I'll lead this, and I'll, you know, um, I, I bet you anything, I would have had a warm and loving yes. But I think I, I just, I just grinned it and bared it for so long to both my detriment and the church's detriment. So yes, it was a wonderful run at Bridgetown. If I had stayed, um, in fact, the original plan was for me to go on sabbatical and then come back as like a founding pastor, teaching pastor, and have hired a couple other people to play, like, re- and really, like, take team leadership to the whole next level. Um, and instead, long very long story short, decided that it was my tenure there was done. So, but that would be really important to me if I were to ever do it again. And I think you're seeing that more and more. Like, I'm of an age where when I started in my, in- you know, in my kind of stream of the church, I didn't really know anybody leading in team. I knew like one or two churches that had a teaching pastor that was different than the lead pastor. The only churches I knew leading in team were really small. And I remember my mentor saying to me, oh, only small churches do that. No large, we were at a large church at the time. No large church can lead that way. That has just been so thoroughly debunked in recent years. Now you have a couple like very large, very successful churches, not that large and successful, the same but you have some very large and very successful churches that have three lead pastors or leadership teams or apostolic teams or just totally different models of leadership. And so I think it has thoroughly debunked that myth. And I think, you know, the the one-stop shopping kind of pastoral call, I don't necessarily think it's bad. I just think it's so rare to find somebody with the capacity to do all of that well. I always felt like- I don't know if I should say this on a podcast, but you know that business maxim: um, the triangle. What is it? Uh, good, fast, cheap, and the mm. a, the maxim is pick two. So you can have <laughs> you can have good and fast, but it'll be expensive, or you can have fast and cheap, but it won't be good, or you can have, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> whatever. Yeah, yeah, pick two. I always kind of felt like in that lead pastor role, there is teaching at a high level, leading at a high level. Being an emotionally healthy person who's a good husband and father, pick two.
0: Pick two. <laughs> wow. Pick two.
1: And there is the uh, there is the rare exception to the rule, like the yeah. Tyler Statens of the world, that can really pull it off. I'm just not the exception to the rule. And now, not everybody has to be an extraordinary leader or an extraordinary pastor, most or teacher. Most pastors are generalists, not not specialists, and so they're not supposed to be. Uh, a level five leader and a TED talk voice to the nations. They're just supposed to be pastor whoever. And that's not Mm -hmm. bad. That's good. But if you're in a, you know, the larger church gets, the more you want to specialize. And by personality, I'm a specialist. I just wanted to give myself more and more to teaching, but you know, it was just this constant mitigation.
0: You, I think that's a really good framework to think about, pick two. And uh, at different points in my life, I probably pick two. And yeah, they're not always, that's not an easy choice. Uh, let's talk about your transition. So we had Tyler Staten on um, yeah, what a late 2022, beautiful interview and had great things to say about the transition and sort of his side of it. I also know what it's like to transition out of a church you founded and even be part of it as you and your family were for a number of months after. Can you talk about what that was like for you, what you went through, what you experienced, what you felt, the waves of emotion? Um, it's it's super challenging. <laughs>
1: yeah, it was one of the most difficult things I've ever done and, yeah. and, and beautiful. I mean, I Mm. Um, I'm living through a bit of a difficult season in my life right now due to some other factors. And uh I keep thinking of that line from Pascal, in difficult times, you must always keep something beautiful in your heart. Mm. And um, there's a real gift in my life. I'm 42. And if I died tomorrow, or if uh I was called out of ministry entirely and went into, you know, whatever journalism or real estate or whatever, or if I just was wildly unsuccessful at every single thing I did until I died. And it's just like (laughs) diminishing returns and whatever. Um, I could die now and it would have been such a meaningful life. I I just feel like it was just such an honor, Um, you know, almost 20 years in, with our church in the city. And I'm just so grateful to have been able to have that be a part of my story now. And even though I'm still in transition, I'm not to the next thing yet, but um, it was a real gift. But yes, yeah, so many emotions. So the gift, there was some gifts in all of it, but the the number one gift was a key phone call I had with Pete Scazzaro, hmm. uh, who was kind enough to have a few long phone conversations with me at the beginning and throughout the transition. And our first time, I still have like the Evernote file on my computer. It's just full of notes from it. He basically said, you know, um, this will be one of, if not the most important moments in your entire ministry at this church. And it will be one of, and more than likely, the most difficult thing you've ever done. And then he said, your, he gave me this Passage as my biblical paradigm. He said, Your passage is Philippians chapter two. Christ, you know, who considered others better than himself, made himself nothing by taking on the nature of a servant, emptying himself, becoming obedient to death, you know, that whole passage, Philippians two. Oh. And he said, That's what you, if you follow Jesus faithfully, that's what you're about to live, to live. And he said, This will be a death. He said, it will be emptying yourself, giving up power, giving up control. It will be a daily death to self. And then he said this. He said, almost nobody else will see it. And the very few people like your wife that do see it will not understand it. It will be the most difficult thing you've ever done. And you need to do it. And I am, it was everything that he just said, not to sound like a martyr, but it was all of that. And I'm so grateful. You know, we live from metaphors. And if somebody had given me the metaphor of you're the patriarch in the family and you deserve honor, and so this is your moment for honor, that would have been a very different metaphor to live into. I'm so grateful that I was given the Christ metaphor, the cross metaphor. And um, and even now as I'm, you know the biblical pattern of death burial resurrection i'm in i'm in burial right now i'm on holy saturday i'm not mm-hmm. to you know the next thing and the next season of life and ministry and uh, that middle season is both a gift because it's a it's a form of rest and it is a dark night because it's a form of death and burial and waiting and I just keep thinking of that line of Jesus, He entrusted Himself to Him who judges justly. And there's a real entrustment of your life and your ministry and your future to Jesus when you let go, you know? Mm-hmm. So, anyway, I'm just, that was a highlight for me, uh, a real gift to have that as a paradigm. So, as I'm navigating all the complex emotions, not all of which were bad, some of which were. No, no, no. As, Lots you know, gratitude. like that, the, the yeah. dad. Yeah. I mean, I I, I would you know, would I don't know what it's like. My kids aren't there yet. But when I walk my daughter down the aisle, you know, and she's gone, or I'm sure that will have like all sorts of complex emotions of I'm so proud of you and I love this man and I hate this man. And how could you walk away? You know, <laughs> and all of, all of that, you know, I'm, I imagine will be in my heart. I don't know. I'm not, know i have not i have not been down that aisle yet, but I imagine it will be something like that, you know? You know, the processing of emotions. I uh, talked
0: to Gordon McDonald about it at different junctures. And uh, boy, I'll tell you, I'm going to read Philippians 2 tonight before I go to bed. Because I hadn't thought about that. But that's exactly what it is. Thank you, Pete. What a gift. Yeah, what a gift. And it is hard. You and I were talking a little bit before we hit record. You know, it's not like, because you were part of Bridgetown for six months or so after you were no longer the lead pastor, you still have opinions. It's not like your brain leaves the position. How did you, I mean, number one, was that true of you? It's definitely true of me. And how, what was that inner debate, dialogue, struggle like for you, John Mark?
1: Oh man. Well, I mean, thankfully, my successor was Tyler Staten, who is extraordinary. Yes. Eleven out of ten, A plus plus plus. The church yeah. is thriving. You know, the church is doing really well. So any any and you know emotional stuff I was working with was was my stuff more than anything else. You know, my leadership coach was so funny. He said once you once you step down, he said you have you have two jobs as the whatever, founding pastor. He's like, your main job is just bless, champion, cheer, sit on the sidelines, clap your hands. You are just, you know, Tyler Staten's number one fan. And your other job is, If it goes horribly wrong and he does a terrible job, you lead a coup. (laughs) And, And you basically leverage all your stuff and you come back and you oust the person, you know? And he said, anything in between is completely off limits to you. Wow. And, um, man, that, that was hard because when you're the lead pastor of a church or whatever, or just, uh, you know, founder or in a central leadership role, you're used to like kind of getting your hands in everything at some level to a fault, you know? And, uh, and then it's all kind of stripped away. And even if you chose it at some level, man, it is so hard. I mean, my therapist recently said to me, I didn't know this, but that one of the highest suicide rates in the world is for CEOs who are regularly ousted from a position or they sell their company if they're the founder or, you know, they're bought out and they're removed or whatever, for whatever reason, that's a volatile job at times. And to go from being like at the center of an organization to being on the outs and have all of your identities stripped away and all of that dredges up, it's apparently like just staggering the suicide rates for these highly educated, highly successful, highly accomplished people um, are often just wrecked by this, you know? So um, that was such a gift. I mean, it's no secret that almost no transitions, especially from founding pastors go well. I think the number is 33% go well. I don't know how they measure that. (laughs) The odds are not in your favor. And there are, two basic things that go wrong there's more but there's two common ones uh one that's the less common one but is the incoming pastor tries to change the church too much uh and they bring too much of their passion conviction theological ideology or ministry philosophy even often really good things but they come with too much of an agenda and they don't recognize that a church is not a brand or a whiteboard or a website. It is a, it is a body. It's a family. It's a community of people. And just like a family has its own internal family systems and a body has its own DNA. I could work with a personal trainer and I'm sure he could help me fix a bunch of things about, you know, my lack of musculature but I'm still going to be me and I'm still going to look like me and be my height and have my color eyes. And, you know, so I think that's one mistake is the incoming pastors don't honor the DNA of the body and the legacy of the family. And they try to change too much or too much too fast. They don't honor the heritage. I made that mistake many, many years ago. And so it's really easy to make because it feels like zeal. It feels like I'm following my convictions about what the church is supposed to be about. But in the reality is you're letting your idealism uh, actually do violence to and harm the church of Jesus. And uh, especially for my personality, I'm an idealistic personality, INTJ and the Myers-Briggs, which is like all the the communists were all INTJs. They're like the (laughs) ideological utopian thinkers, all of them. Uh, I remember Jordan Peterson saying that he collected a bunch of Soviet art and has a whole room apparently in his house that's decorated with like old communist. Yeah, I was like, what? And he said, it's to remind me every day of the danger of utopian thinking and ideology. And, uh, you know, these were egalitarian. We're gonna make a class list. I mean, it's beautiful. You hear like an intellectual communist talk and it's so compelling, like a world that, you know, it's egalitarian, it's just, it's everybody has a place. It sounds beautiful. And it resulted in the greatest genocide in human history. So um, that's an extreme example of a pastor coming with zeal for his spiritual convictions. But that's one mistake. But the far more common mistake, and in my case, far more relevant, was that the the outgoing pastor doesn't let go. He just—it conjures up too much stuff of identity, ego, insecurity, shadow. He cannot handle it. He just cannot handle it. He cannot emotionally self-regulate. And he cannot let go, and so he clings to power, in whatever way, um, and it just sabotages the whole thing. And that's that's the main problem. Whatever percentage, eight out eight out of ten times, you know. So it was really helpful to have that, and I don't even have judgment, honestly, after having done it. And I, I think it went, you know, relatively well. I have like um less judgment for all the pastors that really mucked it up because I just realized how hard it was. And I had an incredible architecture around me of, you know, an, I have an amazing therapist I've been with for 12 years. I have a spiritual director. I had two leadership coaches. We hired a consultant who all he does is church transitions to walk us through. I have close friends in community. Um, And I have a rule of life that has a generous, very ample amount of space for practices of rest like Sabbath and of self-reflection like silence and solitude and retreat days. So I have space for a lot of the shadow stuff to come into my field of awareness. And if I can see it, then I stand a way better chance of not letting it run my behavior, you know? And I still barely survived (laughs) with all of that. Yeah, yeah. It's not like the instincts And most people don't have it. No,
0: (laughs) no. And I was really blessed to have an incredible successor too, who's done great. I mean, like breaking all time highs, which is amazing. And getting to walk with him has been great. But, you know, you're right. Uh, The guy who goes back in and tries to or woman and tries to grab the wheel and like, all right, I got this. It's like, oh, I get how that happens. Like, this is not a mystery to me anymore. But even if it's not the right path, a lot of what is tied up. And again, you're a year on the other side. Into all of this is identity and back yeah. to the whole CEO suicide rate. I mean, you are stepping into something new. It's a it's a bit of an uncertain season, but you had a book coming out later this year, and you know, you have a, a rough idea of what you're gonna do next. But what did what did you learn about identity after stepping away from being a pastor for two
1: decades in a local church? What did
0: you learn about identity?
1: You know, at first I felt like I was doing really good with it. Like I felt there were lots of, you know, the difficult emotions were more about losing my place at the church and I was really close to our leaders. And for all good reasons, I had to step back from those relationships and yes. and hand them over to Tyler And in a a good way, and that was really difficult because I was- Yeah, but no more hanging out with your friends, Exactly. They were my friends and they were the people I processed all my junk with. And now with my, you know, what I'm messing with is I can't, I can't believe, I mean, Tyler's wonderful, but I can't believe he said this or this thing hurt my, I'm (laughs) hypersensitive. I was hypersensitive. This thing hurt my feelings or I wish it had gone differently or I wish they'd done this differently all those kinds of thoughts and feelings, I can't process with them because now I'm in a pastoral role where my job is to help them grieve me leaving and help them fall in love with Tyler coming. And so I can't like, and and now this is distance. I can't ask them, how's it really going? What do you think? How's he actually doing? I can't ask (laughs) any of those questions. In fact, if they even like a conversation even inches in that direction, I have to like, so sorry, I gotta go, bye. You know, I just- (laughs) Because my job is I'm champion number one. Yep. So, um, so, which is great. And again, in Tyler's Mm -hmm. case, it was was much easier. Yeah, and very appropriate and right and fitting. But I, so I had all these complex emotions I was dealing with, but they weren't really identity-based until, like, it all went down. Even on sabbatical, they weren't really identity-based. I think I have... I don't know if it's family of origin or if it's, you know, contemplative prayer is a big part of my life. I just feel so deeply loved by the Trinity and Mm -hmm. all of my brokenness and sin and wounding. I I just feel so incredibly loved by God Mm -hmm. that I think that that was really helpful. But then at the end of sabbatical, we moved. Uh, we're kind of a, a year after the transition, we moved and um, I have to keep it a little bit ambiguous to honor some other parties involved, but we were originally moving to uh, not lead another church, but I was going to teach at a different church just less often, but continue teaching and um, in a place that we'd been praying about going for many, many years. And at the last minute, it all fell through and is a, is a long, complex story to it that I'm not at liberty to, to share And at that point, the identity crisis hit Mm because here I am, I'm a preacher who's not preaching right now. I have been the lead pastor of a church for, you know, forever. And I'm not leading a church. I'm not even on leadership at a church. I'm not even technically a pastor right now. And my entire, so preaching stripped away, leadership is stripped away Pastoral call is stripped away. My community is stripped away. We're doing um, a family gap year right now with our mentors on a, on a little beach down down in Southern California before we settle. And for this season, not permanently, I'm not in an urban center. I'm used to being in a secular urban center. It's even become a part of, like I think, my ego identity. I'm the guy working out formation in secular cities. And once that becomes like a part of your brand... And then it stripped, I mean, I mean that in the crass sense of the word, and then it stripped away. Um, I'm not surrounded by intellectuals where I'm living right now, all of this stuff, I was just like, it was stripping, 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 stripping. I sit in my home office, I'm doing meaningful work, but all by myself. And, uh, it introduced, I think a profound sense of confusion where I felt so clear before, even when I stepped down, I stepped down to go do something because I felt like I had more clarity around my purpose in life. But it introduced almost like a whole new level of confusion. And some of that is just the loneliness that is inevitable to any kind of transition and to any kind of non-traditional vocational path. Like I felt felt early on on a retreat, I felt like the spirit said to me, are you willing to take the lonely path? And, um, I don't think I, and I said, yes, but I don't think I realized just how lonely the path would be long-term. That's really dangerous. Short-term. It's part of how God creates leaders. You know, the Mm -hmm. desert is meant to be a short-term experience biblically and, And the desert is a lonely place where you are in isolation for purpose. Where it becomes a problem is when it's long-term. Like uh, uh, one guy I know is an expert on Mother Teresa. I asked him once about her dark night and all the journals that came out and how he had no sense of God's presence. And his take was, he said that he did not think it was the dark night of the soul. He thinks it was in her early years when she was so, it's a theory, so joyful. She was surrounded by and grounded in community but once she got older, she became famous and she became isolated. And in her isolation and loneliness, it, it it almost blackened her experience of God. So I think long-term, it's important for me to live deeply in community. And we are. We have good people around us. But there is a short-term period I'm living through that's a desert, you know, biblical motif. It's a desert experience. And that loneliness introduced into me a real crisis of identity and and a purpose. I think identity and, and calling are, are two sides of the same coin. You know, we do who we are and um, for better or for worse and hopefully for better. But, you know, with that has come so much soul searching. It's like, be, I think I've real again, back to the body, I've had to learn how much anxiety and fear has just run so many of the decisions of my life, how much of my life has been based on fear management. Mm-hmm. And um, when, when what you fear comes to pass and when so many of the things that you look to for safety and security are stripped away, there, it's brutal, but it is also an incredible gift to be able to hold your life before God and think more wisely about how best to use it and get some more distance, you know, because I think I would have just rushed to the next thing and rushed to, okay, I'm going to go do this thing now. I'm going to go do and this. Busyness does that. Busyness is an incredible coping mechanism for people because it enables people to not face their fears. And um, so when that is stripped away and you have to face your fears, it's sure not fun, but uh, I- I'm, I'm really hopeful that right now I'm learning some things as we discern what exactly to do next. Um, I feel like I have a new perspective on my life that I I would not have had otherwise. It's a really interesting,
0: you know, perhaps for you, midpoint reflection. Because I've been thinking about identity and, you know, yeah, I did ministry for 20 years and it was great and I'm extremely thankful but I also had this, which was growing and then kind of really grew after I went into it more full time. And I'm like, yeah, so it's a little bit like, am I really struggling with identity? Yes, no. But when all that gets stripped away, you know, podcasts yeah. get stripped away, speaking gets stripped away. I always remind myself, I say it academically, there'll be a day where nobody listens. There'll be a day where nobody calls. There'll be a day where nobody reads. There's a day where, and that's coming in. Who am I then? Yes, but it is, it is a really haunting, interesting question. And back to that CEO stat. I mean, that's not the answer, but I get it. Yeah. Another, another thing, another way to look at this, I wrote a post years ago when I was still in leadership, and I get so many DMs about this problem from leaders. And it's the problem of how do you attend a church after you used to lead one? And, (laughs) you know, it's interesting because you have an opinion and this doesn't even have to be Bridgetown. You can go to the church down the road now in SoCal and like you've got opinions about everything from the set to the prayer to the lights to the message to the lobby. And it's extremely difficult and you're not valued at the same level that you were when you were in leadership it just, it stirs another cocktail of emotions, not necessarily a good one. Have you experienced any of that yet in any early insights of what it's like to be a participant in a church
1: when you're not the leader? I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Next question. Um, oh,
1: Yeah, I, I mean. I feel
0: it every Sunday, dude, and I, I don't know that I have an easy answer for it.
1: Yeah, I certainly don't have an easy answer. I feel it right now. Um, it's really hard for me to not moralize it and beat myself up about it. Um, so I think uh, one of the things I'm learning to do, and, and this is a, a unique challenge for my particular personality type, but is to observe without judgment. You know, um, I can't turn the part of my brain off. My, I've been formed for yeah, 20 no, years. Me too. Anything that went wrong on a Sunday service, like I it, I would write it down on my Evernote in the front <laughs> row or whatever because it was my responsibility if it didn't self-correct it to circle it back around and fix it. So like 100%. you do that for 20 years and I'm a perfectionist and a high value for excellence. I care about words. I care about language. Um, so you do that for 20 years. It's not like you can just like Turn my brain has become a certain type of brain, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, and I can't just turn that part of my brain off. And I haven't been a participant in church since I was in high school. Was the last time I just attended a church. I've been on staff at a church since I was nineteen years old. So um, and we planted really really early. So. I don't, I think trying to erase that part of my brain that sees all the things. I mean, I was laughing the other day and, and there's a gift to it because if you can see it, but it's not your problem. Like the other day at our church with this beautiful church, but there was a slide that had just a, it had a misspelled word that was quite egregious on the slide. And mm-hmm. my first mm-hmm. thought was what idiot misspelled. And then I was like, <laughs> not my problem. That's amazing. I <laughs> can just have a, sl- have a slide that has a, is, somebody messed up. It's not my problem. And again, that goes to my level of, you know, obsessive compulsive stuff that is, I have a great therapist, praise God. <laughs> um, so I think learning to observe without judgment is amazing. Um, mm-hmm. One hidden gift in it, especially as we think about if we ever were to start something again, you know, in four or five years that was different, is it's been a real gift for me to experience the church without my ego identity tied to it, Um, which could not have happened if I had stayed at Bridgetown, but since we've moved, um, my ego is not tied up in this church at all. My sense of self, Mm. my sense of self-worth, it's just not at all tied up in this church. And that enables me um, to see myself better and enables me to see the church better and to have a more objective perspective. You know, it's that. Which is, I think, a, a massive problem for pastors, especially those that aren't super self-aware or went right into ministry at a young age, is we we forget that much of what we're passionate about is the kingdom of God, and some of it is just about our own career. And so we expect the rest of the church to be as excited about certain initiatives as we are or to show up for all the things that we are that— but we're like it's our job to do this and our egos tied into it and we can't like extrapolate out our ego from our vision for the year ahead all the best we can do is be aware of it and and hold it with self-awareness and humility and honesty so that's a, a real gift there was this uh, church planting movement about 10 years ago they're not planting anymore but they planted some really good churches and part of their process was a two-year period that they called ministry detox so if you were gonna plant through them, you had to move and join one of their ascending churches. You had to spend a full year working off staff. So like most of these guys would get like low paying jobs at banks or whatever. They, and you were just like with the, the sending pastor would just spend time with you. You'd eat meals together, you'd pray together. Zero ministry, zero training, just a year where you're just gonna be a person and work at whatever and then a second year of like preparation and learning and training, and then you would go. And they called it ministry detox. And they believed it was essential that you go through a period of detoxification before you go back out and plant. And what they all said is that you experience the church so differently when you're not the pastor and when your Mm -hmm. ego identity is not tied up into it, you know? And so I think every pastor at some point has got to have or it would be, not got to have, it would be wonderful if all of us could experience some of what I'm experiencing right now, as hard as it is. Mm. The other thing that I'm learning is, you know, it's just it's just caused me to double down on really viewing uh, my table community. Just meaning the the group of about twenty of us that do life in a neighborhood around a table. Um, as really my primary experience of church and Sunday, very much as secondary. And that's always been a part of my ecclesiology. I said that from the pulpit for many years at Bridgetown um, and meant it. It was not just branding. I really meant that and have trying to been living that, but it's especially true for me now because I can enjoy a meal with deep, you know, honest conversation um, with my community in ways that are much easier for me to just be at peace and enjoy than a Sunday experience, where that part of my brain is like, I do the sermon differently, and the sermon's about eight minutes too long, and, oh, man, the sound guy today is struggling, you know? <laughs> and um, so it's great. And it's also one of the things I'm loving, too, the church we're at, which is our mentor's church, is a totally different type of church, which I love. Yeah. Um, so it's all built around Dunbar's principle. You know, the sociologist who said human oh, beings yeah, yeah. Op- Dunbar's optimize. Dunbar's number, like that kind yep. of thing. Exactly. So they won't let it get bigger than 150 people before they plant. They do a full meal together every week. It's incredibly communal. There is a Sunday gathering. It does have a sermon and singing, but it's just not why you would come to this church. And so I think it's helpful for me that I'm not sitting at some mega church or whatever, just critiquing, you know, um, but I'm at a very different type of church where I'm actually learning a lot. It has a different value system. It has different strengths, different weaknesses, different light, different shadow. That's really helpful, I think, for me, too. Thanks for going know, there. But uh, can you answer that question? Can you pastor me a little bit here? Like what? Oh, you what know, advice for me, do you have. I- I'm
0: still plugged in at at our church. And uh, Jeff has asked me to coach him twice a month. Not that he needs it. He doesn't need it, but he finds it helpful. So I go in Thursday morning, every other Thursday, we spend about 90 minutes together. And I'm just like, whatever he wants to talk about, we talk about. If he asks me my opinion, I give it. Otherwise, I don't. I think that's a really good pressure release valve because it is very hard. And what you said about ego identity And Philippians 2 has been incredibly helpful for me because you're right. Anytime I'm like, oh, what about that transition that didn't go well? Or I would have done the trailer this way or hmm, why'd they pick this song? Not that song. You know, I used to have input into all of that and I really don't anymore. Like I'm preaching this Sunday. I don't know what we're singing. I don't know who's hosting. I don't know. And I'm a little control freakish, like a bit of a perfectionist on that stuff, particularly if it attached to the platform because the platform attached to me, right? Yes. So you want to really get into it. That's what's underneath it. And it's ugly and it's not pretty, but yeah. God is gracious and he redeems it. Um, so, you know, that you're right. That's ego identity. It really is. And you're completely like, I, I talked to a friend who owns a restaurant here locally, about it. And it's much easier for me to go to a church out of town and just sit there and go, well, that didn't work and it doesn't really matter. But you're right. It's not attached to my ego identity, my insecurity, my pride, any of that. And I can go to any decent restaurant and just have a good time. Like maybe the service wasn't great or you know, the food was okay. It wasn't bad. I don't want my money back, but it was fine. And he's like, oh yeah, I can't do that with a restaurant. I go into a <laughs> restaurant and I'm like, why did they, why did they seat us this way? And then how come the tables are yes. so close together? Yes. All that like, and, and, and he's like, the music is too loud or, uh, oh, the kitchen didn't get on that right away. All these things I don't notice because I just, I'm just there for the meal, right? Like, and a good time with my wife or my friends or whoever I'm with my kids. And, but he sees it totally differently. And you're right about that, that, that brain, your brain is a blessing and a curse. And it was a blessing and a curse in leadership, right? Because there are times where if something didn't go well, you can come down on your team too hard and crush people who worked really hard on something, or you're just wrong. You're majoring in minors. You're just wrong about it. Or, you know, so, and, and, you know, I've, I've had, had good, Guidance from friends who just say, you know, I got a friend who's in his 80s, and he's like, "Yeah, you never get over it." So that's the good news, Carrie. You're in your 50s; you never get over it. I'm like, great, I got more
1: decades of this.
0: But I do think I am going to seriously take you up on that Philippians too. I don't know. And it, those those are a few thoughts that I have. But it is great to be under the discipline of a leader that I love and respect. It is great to see the job he's doing, and and it's also, you know, I think. Andy Stanley taught me this, but you want to celebrate other people's wins. And we were there last Sunday and, you know, I kind of knew cause I have enough insider knowledge to know that attendance records were shattering. And, you know, this was the best and strongest our church has ever been, but I was genuinely happy. Like I'm yeah. getting emotional thinking about it yeah. now. Like I'm so happy for that team. Mm-hmm. I'm so happy for our church. But then if you really want to do the psychoanalysis, am I happy because I started it? Or am I just happy because yes. it's the right emotion, right? But I am I am tearing up right now. I'm just thrilled yeah. for, for the no, team that's... there and Jeff and the work they're doing. And the people we're reaching, you know? Yeah. I was saying to Jeff on Sunday, I'm like, I think the average age dropped 20 years this year. Like, mm. this is amazing. Like, wow. it's great. And it was already good. So yes. I don't know. It's a good, you know what? It's that value of community. I am in a whole new role with some of the people that I've known for 25 years. And it's beautiful. And I have a few genuine, wonderful, authentic friendships that have endured and some great relationships. One of the tensions I have, just being totally transparent, is, you know, I kind of want to go there on Sunday morning and just be an attender. You can't. Sometimes, oh no, you can't. And you can't. You know, I was like, I want to talk to the people that I'm still kind of hanging out with, but I don't want to talk to everyone else. Now, half our church doesn't know who I am. They don't. They've all Mm -hmm. come since I left. You know, they have no idea who I am. I'm just an attender. But sometimes the other half of
1: the church, you will never just be Carrie coming to church, sitting in the ninth row. Yeah.
0: Nope. And. I was complaining about it one day on the way home from church. It's like, why
1: can't I just go
0: in and sit in the back row and people have to stop me like I'm their pastor, but I'm not their friend. And Tony just looked at me and she goes, you were their pastor for two decades. Do you expect them to turn that off? I'm like, yeah, but I'm not their pastor. Jeff's their pastor. And she's like, you you can't undo that history. And I'm like, that helped me so much. So for anybody who's in that situation, if these last five minutes have been helpful, that's what I'm going through on a regular basis. And and it's something I voluntarily submit myself to. And I think it's a good spiritual discipline.
1: Yeah. And, and if you approach it as a spiritual discipline, you know, in my better moments, that's how I try to hold it, you know? <laughs> and again, I mean, I'm, I'm dealing with best case scenario where my successor is this extraordinary, godly, gifted, Same. you know, but that has its own challenges in like, you, you kind I mean, of want like them him better than me. You, you, you kind of like want him better them than me. I want them to be kind of like a B plus, you know, like, <laughs> like, you know, good, but it's not a, that good. It's like, you know, that yeah. line in, in, Elf where, uh, the, <laughs> I forget, the, the store manager, the department store in the children's area comes in and like, uh, you know, he's redecorated everything overnight. He's like, you see these, see these decorations? Like they're good. They're a little too good. Somebody's gunning for my job. That's how I feel about <laughs> Tyler Staten. He's good. He's a little too good. Too you good. know, <laughs> no, which is which is genuinely wonderful. And it drags up this stuff in your heart. You know, you're like, mm-hmm. oh, here's this guy who's younger than me, who's never led a church this size, and he's leading it better than I did. And that's exactly that's success. And that mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. that that brings up emotions in my heart that I'm like, whoa. <gasps> where where did that come from And what's underneath that And that is certainly not the heart of Jesus And so To have mm-hmm. that stuff mm-hmm. come up And to be able to view it As a spiritual discipline Of um, yeah, I just think it has the capacity to To Form in me Some virtues that we see in Christ Such as humility Quietness yep trust in God, things that are just not natural to me, that living through this experience, both the parts of it that have been hard and the parts of it that have gone really well, yeah, it just it's a spiritual discipline. It's a means of grace, you know? And I think if you don't view it that way, you'll become cynical. And that's the real hmm. tragedy when you see, so you see pastors step down and then walk away from the church. And I'm like, what the heck? Or yeah. pastors step down and they become the critic or they become the cynic or... Um, yeah, you have to fight that in your heart. And, and w- one of the things that it really exposed in me was, all right, I've said for my whole life, like I'm here to serve the church. This is not about me. It's about mm-hmm. Jesus and I'm here mm-hmm. to serve. But what happens when your ego identity is stripped away? What happens when the church goes on great without you? Uh, what happens when nobody asks your opinion on anything? Um, Exactly do I actually believe that it's about Jesus, not about me, and I'm the servant, and I, now I'm just a servant in a different role? Do I, do I, is that just all smoke and mirrors, or do I actually believe that? And the reality is I don't believe a lot of that, but it gives, <laughs> me, the, it gives me the chance to actually live, you know, more in line with what I know to be true and what I want to be true of my heart. Mm. I want to be able to say yeah. with Paul, I, I am your servant. You know, I want to be able to say that. Um, and have it not be self-delusion.
0: Yeah, I think it is, you know, as am I willing to submit myself to an authority other than me? Mm. There's there's a very fundamental question in that. And yeah. I think for me, with my personality type, the answer has to be yes. That's what I've been doing. And um, it's been good for me. And yeah. again, it's one of those things where You know, you you mentioned this and I look back and sometimes, you know, Jeff cracks a code and I'm like, well, how come I could never crack that code? Like I I tried and I couldn't. I didn't. And you know, but then you at the end of the day, you just gotta celebrate. You gotta say, well, good, good, good for you. So it has been tremendous. And you know what, you're right, because there are a lot of pastors who walk away from church. They don't go anymore. They don't attend anymore. Maybe they read their Bible, but they're out. Or a lot of worship leaders. Or yes. and I bet you we got thousands of them listening to this. And I would just encourage them to try to get involved in a local church and submit yourself as one under authority to yeah. someone else. And yeah. it will dredge up all the emotions John Mark and I just talked about, plus some others, <laughs> I'm sure, because we didn't we didn't we didn't empty the list. Uh, we didn't get to the bottom but I think it can be really good and it's a joy. I'm glad I'm going to be there on Sunday preaching and I hope I would be Mm. just as glad if I wasn't. Do you know? Yeah. So thank you. I'd love to ask you this because I have a good friend. It's a mutual friend, actually, I won't say who, who uh, ended up leaving ministry after four decades. And we would talk regularly and he said, I just don't know what to do with my days. I don't know what to do with my days. And he's not done. He's in a transition period like you. What do you do with your days these days? What, how are you been working on a book? I know that, but like, how is that different than the rhythm of being in day-to-day leadership?
1: Um, Yeah, I mean that I, I have meaningful work to do. So I'm not leading a community right now, but we've started this new nonprofit called Practicing the Way and we're creating formation resources for churches So um, I'm kind of basically like a a discipleship pastor, you know, resource creator for lots of churches. So in many ways, my my days are the best they've been ever right now. And that was Mm -hmm. one of the reasons I stepped down from leading was to give myself more to teaching and writing and really wanting, you know, I want to make my best contribution. I'm just aware of how short life is and um, I think I'm that's my main, you know, I was always a B plus leader on my best days, you know. Um, and uh Bridgetown did very well, but I think mostly because of the kindness and favor of God and the strength of our team and the the heart of our community, not so much because I'm a great leader. I'm much more of a teacher, spiritual director kind of personality. And um so yeah, my days are wonderful right now. I'm, I get to, mm. I spend every, I'm, I'm very, they're the most uh, routine they've ever been. Um, they're slavishly boring. And uh, which the creative life and boredom, you know, are, are good bedfellows. So um, my days right now are, if my, my prior life, my struggle was just emotional exhaustion as an introvert and too much relational conflict and constant crises. Now my problems are loneliness, boredom, tedium, staying focused on long, you know, every day doing long work studies, but they're wonderful. Uh, it's, it's amazing. It's the first time in my life I've ever, as an I've always been an introvert in an extrovert's job. And which is one of the great tragedies is I think most evangelical churches don't have a place for introverted teachers, um, even though that's one of the major gifts to the church. Um, But they just, there's not a good place for that on a pastoral staff much of the time. So um, even when there is, it's more of an allowance than a blessing. So it's the first time I've ever had a job that is a good fit for my personality. So my days are a lot of research, writing, creating resources for churches, um, working with lead pastors, whether it's for spiritual direction or coaching or working out, you know, how to do formation in their churches and, uh, and other new stuff of running an organization and fundraising and getting a little team together, stuff like that. That's, you know, mm. kind of just organizational stuff, but Yeah
0: have you or do you have difficulty or what is your process for self motivation and the reason i'm asking the question is sometimes you know my favorite favorite days are no meeting days but if i have a no meeting day i get bored so quickly and and it's like hey you longed for this day for a week now you have the opportunity you have a you know a blank slate you can do that deep work that writing project But motivating myself to do it. I find I work better in three-hour bursts, like in a morning and then an afternoon of meetings. What do you do if you have, you know, wide open days with no meetings in them? Are you able to stay motivated? What are some tricks? Are you just naturally wired that way? How How does that work for you?
1: Not long term. I think that, you know, as I'm so introverted, that was always the dream. And I'm learning yeah, I need a little stimulation, and I need more than just a blank word doc, you know? Uh So yeah, my ideal day is basically um, get up early, pray, read every morning, and then do research and writing until about noon every day. And so then getting just like a good four or five hour block in every day of just deep work in Cal Newport speak. Um, And then I take a midday break. I exercise. I do my cold plunge, which is amazing. And (laughs) I'm reinvigorated. And then the afternoon I can do stuff like this um, or do meetings or do email if I have to or do planning or meet with people. And then, you know, occasional days for solitude and kind of vision stuff. That's like my dream life. And of course, very few of us ever live our dream life, but this week happens to be one of those weeks and I'm loving it, you know? So, so yeah, anything beyond that morning rhythm, I find myself just, it's law of diminishing returns. I struggle to focus. I want to like check the news or the weather on my internet browser, (laughs) a disproportionate amount of time,
0: you know? and Like um, Hemingway, right till lunch and that's it. He had some habits that- that's it. You know, yeah.
1: It's like, that's about it. 6 a.m. till noon. That's it. all I got. And all the science mm-hmm. says, you know, it, your brain is a muscle. It is. Attention can be increased, strengthened, finely tuned. Even now I'm noticing it like as we're recording this, I, I'm only a week back from my Christmas vacation. And a couple of weeks before Christmas, uh, I did barely any deep works. So we're doing kind of end of year fundraising and some other things. So I had like maybe four-ish weeks off of like my normal rhythms And man, just like staying focused every day till noon and not going to check my phone or, you know, peek at email or whatever is so much harder than it normally is. Just in the month off, it's like, wow, my brain has atrophied. So it's like, all right, got to just force it, got to kick it back into gear, you know? So, but even uh, the science that I've read is even at its, you know, at its height, you're kind of at four, maybe five hours a day, max, probably more like three or four hours a day right. max, yeah. you know, of that real good focused deep work. Um, but again, I don't look at my phone till noon most days. And so that's, that's really helpful. If, if I can work with no phone, no email and no internet till noon every single day, um, that's, that's a meaningful life, you know, where How I can do, do that. I, I can because do that. Because you're my,
0: working on a computer. Do you just turn it on, do not disturb and disconnect it from the internet. Like it's that tension, right? The device that distracts us is also the device that Uh, helps us. It's so so
1: terrible. I know, I know, I know, I know. Because let's say you have to,
0: I'm sure you sit around with a lot of hardback books on your desk But you're like, I got to learn more about Teresa Vavilla. So you do a Wikipedia search, or you're deep Googling, or you go. Next thing you know, you're like Googling Brad
1: Pitt late outfits or whatever, (laughs) shopping (laughs) for a new pair of sweatpants.
0: (laughs) A (laughs) hundred percent. Like you know, when you're using the internet for research, do do you? Or it's just like, yeah, I went down the wormhole. That's it. My fault.
1: Yeah, it's brutal. I mean, uh. I don't know. I don't, I don't have a secret to that. Um, I don't have a secret to that. I try to do research and other times, you know, when I have to do that. Yeah. I don't know. Just try to stay disciplined. Your body does, your brain does acclimate and knowing that it's not forever. I'm just trying to make it till noon every day is really, really helpful, you know? And, um, and knowing I can even only do that so many days, you know, with focused output. So if I can do Fridays, if they can do more just reading, long-term research, visionary and stuff, where I don't have a due date, it's not like I have to get this done. Uh, That's even helpful for my brain, you know? Yeah.
0: Fridays, I've been experimenting a lot with Fridays lately and they're, they're a gift. If you use them differently, they really are. are, Summer, I'll take, I'll take them off. But it's hard, but I'm sensitive
1: to any pastors yeah. listening. I mean, it's just, you're just trying to get your sermon done. And well, you don't have Sunday, Sunday, And keep the church Sunday, Sunday, from Sunday. burning down, you know? <laughs> so that <laughs> yeah. that's the major shift in my life that is so different. And, you know, the grass is always greener. I'm so grateful for this. And I'm lonely, and I miss working with the team, and I miss preaching live, and I miss being a part of the formation of a community. And some of that's seasonal in my life. But some of that is, you know, just the perennial lesson of, you know, you have to bloom where you're planted. What's the Willard line? God is yet to bless anybody other than where they actually are. And uh, we, we just have to find the goodness of God in our actual life. You know, the actual life that we have, not the life that we, that we wish we had, you know?
0: One of, one of the things, I have a good friend, Jeff Henderson, who says, uh, you know, he asked this question— What's it like to be on the other side of me? So, mm. you know, what would your wife, your children, the people who see you every day a year out, how would they answer that question? You know, how have you changed or morphed? It's been a difficult year. It's been, you know, a challenging sabbatical, but are you seeing, like, I look at my wife and she would say, I'll take 57 year old Carrie over 37 year old Carrie any day, like mm. just kinder, gentler more gracious, et cetera, et cetera. And the church was growing like crazy when I was 37, but yeah, it was it was pick two, right? So, yeah. so you know, I wasn't always picking, uh, you know, be a nice person, that, that the stress would come out at home. And now it's totally different. Um, and I hope three years from now she'll have a different answer. Like, oh, you're way better at this. Or, you know, the people who really know me. What, any Any changes that people have noticed in your change of pace in you? over the last year what they I mean, say. you're
1: asking the wrong person. You would need to ask yeah. my wife who is not here right, right now or I would pull her in. But, um, yeah, you'd have to, and you're asking the wrong person. Oh. I, I would like to, I, you know, I think in my experience things got worse before they got better. So, um, as is often the case with anything therapeutic. Um, so, uh, you know, some real low seasons of hmm sadness, irritability, reactivity, you know, I mean, again, I was just diagnosed with PTSD. That's like, uh, not a joke. Um, but I think now it's an increasingly, yeah, I would like to say that I really feel like I am moving, growing in the fruit of the spirit, um, slowly, but surely over time. And the major difference for me right now is when I get off work, I'm tired, but good tired, I'm not exhausted like I was for most of my ministry just because, and that's, that's not, I don't think that's so much a function of ministry, although there is a unique challenge there, but just my introversion in an extroverted job and all, you know, so um, I still have days like that, but to get off and to be, it's incredible for me as an introvert to like, want to go be with people like, Mm -hmm. you know, we have, uh, we have dinner tonight with some friends and we have our community dinner tomorrow night. And I'm so excited to like go eat a meal with a bunch of people and the noise and the chaos for me as a hyper introvert that I have not felt like that way since I was in high school, you know? Mm. So that is a real, a real gift in this season. But yes, um, I, I do feel that I'm in a, in a much better place. But I don't want that to read, you know, therefore you too should quit your church and go do something <laughs> yes. else. Cause I don't, yeah. I don't believe that. And there are other things about it that are far more challenging. And mm-hmm. some of what I'm experiencing now is almost like an extended sabbatical season. That won't be a long-term. I do imagine myself preaching and serving a local church long-term, just not as the lead pastor. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I don't know where we are at time other than past. Um, Do you have time for one more question?
1: Yeah, maybe one more. And then I need to go just because I I have a meeting I'm supposed to be at right now.
0: Oh, well, then you know what? Let's have you back on when your book comes out. Oh,
1: sure. Of course. Yeah. That'd be wonderful. Let's
0: do that. Let's do that. All right. That would be great. John Mark, as always, thank you. Oh, it's my
1: honor to be with you. I love how you think about the world, Carrie. I love the humility and curiosity and wisdom that you bring to the world. And um, it's a real honor to chat to you. It's an honor to chat with you
0: too. And I feel like we had dinner and bared our souls about not being the lead pastor anymore
1: and being part of a church. So (laughs) if
0: that helps some people along the way, I think that's great. You may have to edit
1: some of that out. I completely defer Uh, to your judgment. I think it's okay.
0: I think it's Uh, okay. It's okay. Jeff knows all that. And, uh, you know, that's good. So thank you, John Mark. Hey, people are gonna to want to track with you you're sort of back on social and what is a good website that you might direct them to these
1: days. Yeah, just practicingtheway.org. That's our new venture. That's right. where I'm giving all of my energies. We're doing practices and podcasts and courses we have a book coming out this fall. So my that's my whole world right now is creating spiritual formation resources for churches. So awesome.
0: When's the book come out? October? Uh, in October. Yeah, late October.
1: Yeah. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Thank you, John Mark. Thank you.
0: Well, I told you it got real and that's why I love doing this show. We have show notes for you. You can find them at kerrynewhoff.com slash episode 555. Uh, you can also get transcripts. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts or even better, share it on social, text the link to a friend, spread the word because as this grows, we're able to continue to do it and to serve more leaders. So we're so honored for that. So honored you would join us and we never take your time for granted. That's why we vet our partners really carefully. So make sure you check out Rethink Leadership. I'm going to be there. I'm going to be speaking there for the first time in four years and would love to see you in the room April 26th to 28th. When you sign up for Rethink Leadership, you also get admission to the Orange Conference. Go to conference.rethinkleadership.com and use the code CARRY23 for special pricing. And then don't miss out on the partner guides for He Gets Us, the amazing camp- campaign. campaign that's happening across national media that's really helping people have conversations about Jesus to get you or your church in for free. Go to hegetsuspartners.com slash Super Bowl to learn more about the resources available to you. Also coming up, well, we talked about Rethink Leadership and Reggie Joyner and Kristen Ivey are going to be there. We haven't done this for a few years, but we brought back the Leadership Roundtable. So Kristen, Reggie, and I talk about, well, so much what research reveals families are really struggling with, why unchurched people don't care about your next sermon series, the tensions of leadership transitions, and reaching the next generation, and a whole lot more. Here's an excerpt. Carrie, I remember a story where you and I, in the early days, were talking about pastors preaching on Sunday mornings, and you said you'd up that Sunday morning, you were on your way to church and you were passing by all of these homes where somebody was cutting the yard or pulling their boat out to go to the lake, and you thought in your mind, nobody really cares about what I'm going to say Sunday morning from the platform. They care about their relationships. They went to bed on Saturday night worried about, you know, I don't know what their spouse is going through or what their kid is dealing with. It really does come down to some of those issues. And if we're disconnected from those issues, then it's just a matter of time before we don't know how to connect faith to their everyday world. That's next time on the podcast. Also coming up, John Lee Dumas, Erwin McManus, Albert Tate, Gretchen Rubin. Uh, Who else have we got? Well, a lot of others, J.P. Pakluda, and a whole lot more. And did you see the research that says the decline in religion is actually bad for people? In other words, as church attendance declines, uh, despair, suicide are going up. There's actually scientific data to back that up. If you're looking for why your church matters, why you need to continue to grow your ministry? Well, I share links like that all the time in something called On The Rise. It's my new weekly newsletter delivered every Friday. And in it, I feature the most fascinating and often curious content about faith, the culture, the future church and life and other helpful topics. So if you want to start receiving it, get it for free by going to ontherisenewsletter.com to sign up. This content is exclusive to newsletter subscribers. We don't publish it elsewhere and... You'll be seeing giveaways and fun perks throughout the year. So check it out. We love to give away free stuff. Go to ontherisenewsletter.com. You'll never miss an episode. And thank you so much for listening, everybody. I can't wait till the next episode. And I hope our time together today has helped you thrive in life and leadership.